to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we've got some Micah and some Isaiah to walk through today, as well as a little bit more Mark as Still in usual. Mark. And so, um, yeah, but we pick off on the pick up on the very last two chapters of Micah and uh, Micah still bringing or God still bringing this indictment through Micah. And, um, and, and, and I love sort of language here because God still reminds them. He's like, look, I was a loving God to you in the past. I was not the smiteful, disgruntled, capricious God. Like I was gracious and loving a shepherd to you guys. Like, but you have forgotten, like none of this is on me. This is because you have forgotten what I require and what I desire out of you. Yeah, I think it's good for us to kind of step back and remember that God has never failed us. And he's not going to ever fail us. And we fail him, of course, but um, to look back and him saying, like, I don't know why you're doing Like, well, he knows, but why are you doing this to me? Why are you rejecting me? I've only done good for you. Yeah. And, and what does he desire and what does he require? Well, I mean, all the sacrifices are great. And, and ironically, God has actually commanded all those things. But, but what good are they if like they don't really lead to the change heart and, and focus on worship? That's what like what God is after. Humble hearts that pursue mercy and justice and care for others, who love God, who love other people like that. That is what God desires out of his people, not just temple practices. He, he desires a changed, unique priesthood, peculiar people. Um, and, and that's not what he's had. And so he sort of almost has language. Uh, I think Paul in his long thing we use for weddings, that, that love conversation in first Corinthians 13, I think it almost has a similar language where it's just like, what good is sacrifice and what good is faith and what good is prophecy? If, if there's not love, it's sort of mm-hmm. the undergirding piece of that. Yeah. And, um, and, and so here's what God desires. Here's what God wants. And it's mercy and, and, and those kind of things. And so same thing that Jesus says to the Pharisees, like, yes, like you're going through the motions, but you're, you're neglecting, you're missing the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy. And so, yeah, Yeah, and I think, you know, we're reminded too with this that biblical justice, it's not just retribution, but it's also restoration. It's healing and forgiveness. And that's what it looks like to walk justly um, and to act humbly before God. And, And all of this stuff that Micah is saying, none of it is a surprise. It's just the most difficult thing to ask, which is to love your neighbor more than yourself, which is why the leaders aren't doing it, which is why he's calling them and speaking judgment on them for the neglect, not because they didn't know it, but because they didn't want to do it because it was too hard. And I I mean, I get that personally. Yeah. And, and, and he certainly highlights some of the extremes of how the, the, the interaction with people has gone so awry. And he's like, because of your oppression, like you're, you're, you've treasures, your houses are filled with treasures gotten by wickedness and you've got wicked scales and your rich are, are violent as well. And, and judgment's coming like, you will be struck down and and there will be a, a day when like nothing will possibly satisfy you. Yeah. I think we see like a little bit of a back and forth here when it comes to what idol worship is like and how some of God allowing this judgment or bringing upon this destruction is just the natural consequences of sin. When we choose to live outside of God's design for us, we will reap the natural consequences of that, which are destruction and pain and sorrow and loss yeah. too. And so um, they're, they're sort of awaiting for Micah here for salvation. He, he kind of almost has his hands and defeat. Like there's no one righteous around here. And uh, I mean, certainly there might be a little bit of hyperbole in that because even the book of Judges is constantly like everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But yet we also get the book of Ruth to find out, okay, maybe not 
everybody was doing right in their own eyes, but obviously a large, vast majority yeah. of people are doing right in their own eyes. And so, uh, but Micah's like, I'm, I'm going to stay focused on Yahweh. Um, and, and he seems to understand his role as sort of the faithful remnant, like God's judgment is coming upon all of Judah and I'm going to suffer too. Like I, I know I've sinned as well and I'm, I'm willing to suffer the storm that God is bringing, but God's going to bring me out. And his judgment uh, and my enemies will, will, will see who God really is. And on the other side of it, there's going to be a faithful remnant. And those that aren't part of the remnant are going to be scattered forever. Like God's judgment is a refiner. And, and Micah kind of sees mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we see hope in this, you know, and Micah has kind of sprinkled the hope throughout the whole book. But oftentimes we feel so heavy and so burdened by what's happening in the world around us, both globally and locally, domestically. But what we can do as believers is recall and remember that there will be a day that it will all be made right once and for all. The wicked will full receive the full punishment for their actions and those in Christ will give account for their faithfulness or faithlessness, but will stand free because of Christ's deliverance. And so even as we read about these judgment days coming, look forward to what um, it's pointing to the future judgment day where God will make it all right. Yeah. And, and, Micah starts pointing in the direction that we have a, like in Yahweh, like we have one who does provide a forgiveness of sin. He will provide a way out of judgment in the end. And, um, and there's forgiveness, like where sins are cast into the sea. Um, and, and so, um, some of that is, is the restoration of Israel, but even more of that is in Jesus. And so, um, the, the, the one who truly finds a way to, to provide propitiation, to provide, um, forgiveness of these sins and to cast them into the sea. Yeah, I think I read in some translation somewhere at some point that it's um, your sins are cast into a sea of forgetfulness. And I know that that's not like theologically 100% in line, but uh, I just think it's incredible imagery. And I think even if we were to pull out this passage in and of itself without knowing the context, it would be really moving. But isn't it so much more powerful and rich after reading all of the buildup to it through uh, the first seven chapters of Micah? God is furious and he's brokenhearted at the sins of Israel, uh, looking at idol worship, looking at oppression to others or of others. And God promises judgment. But then we end with this passage about how God has not forgotten his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is going to continue to show faithfulness and compassion to us. And we have experienced it through Christ. And everyone has experienced it through Christ. So what are some of those final thoughts? <laughs> you want to wrap it so, up? Um, yeah, I think I just get, I'm continually amazed about how much of the Bible is about social justice. And maybe I knew it before, but I feel like I'm seeing it with new eyes this time around. So, uh, so much of, you know, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch is about equitable treatment and justice and welcome for all people. Uh, and the law, so many of them were centered around avoiding oppression and providing dignity and value and acceptance to all people. And now we're in the prophets and they're condemning Israel because they have not cared for others. They have not, they have contributed to oppression. And so, so I think seeing this all together has continued to grow my love and adoration for, for God, not just because of what he did for me in salvation, but because of the way he fights for the oppressed. And if I want to be like him, I need to do that too. Yeah. It, it's definitely interesting. Just the, the, these early prophets and, and yeah, their, their emphasis on the sort of wealth and power and empire that Judah and Israel had become and um, particularly charges against the, the, the rich and, and those who are ultimately oppressing others. And, um, and there's Baal and Asher worship and other stuff in there, but there's so many indictments on like how they're, 
um, taking their eyes off of, off of Yahweh and not, not pursuing him have led to power, money, position, comfort, and all these things to, to oppress others. And God's had enough of it. And it's, it's the very thing that caused God to act in Egypt in some ways, the, the sort of enslavement that, that the, the people were under when they cried out to God. And it's the, the very thing that causes God to act now. God hear, hears people's cry and does respond. And so um, it, it kind of gets back to like, do, do I think about the weightier matters and and um, of justy, justice and mercy? And, and will my walk be marked with the humility that, that God does require? Like, this is what God is after, humble hearts. And do I consider the actions I take and the purchases I make and the way I live right now and like not only how I love and glorify God, but how those same actions affect others and my choices. And so um, there, there's some weight to that. Yes, absolutely. I, I have forgiveness in Jesus and, and that that is central to my salvation. But um, if it's not overflowing to turn me into a changed person that lives in light of God's design and desires for his people to be peculiar and not like the world, will, will that start changing like how I think about how my actions affect and, and possibly cause the oppression of others. Yeah. Or even being just sensitive enough to hear the cries of others. It just makes me think, I don't, I don't think I've asked specifically God that he would open my ears to hear the cry of the oppressed, but that's something, and I try to be aware, but I'm, I'm going to start praying that and see kind of how he responds. Yeah. So Isaiah, this is our first encountering of a major prophet. Now that doesn't mean that uh, it's not like major league and minor league. Like the the majors are that much better, Um, but uh, it does mean that they're long. And uh, we've got four majors, though only three of them are really long. Uh, Daniel's kind of a short and not always that prophetic of a book, but um, yeah, uh, this one is particularly long and will cover, I think more time than any other prophet we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it'll start um, at this time frame, kind of right before the fall of the Northern kingdom. And it will end like way into the future in terms of like the restoration of, of Israel with some pred- prophetic wording towards the, the, the final culmination of all things. But um, there, there's quite a time frame, uh, and some of that time frame has even caused um, – there's a lot of debate about whether this is a single author, whether there's a bunch of multiple authors contributing, whether it's two, three, four. There's all sorts of different breakdowns. Um, and and I, we won't get into the long debate on that, uh, but um, it's important to know like there, there, there's different – chunks of time, which is why we break down the book kind of how it is that there's a long period that Isaiah is talking about kind of before captivity. And, and then we'll, we'll jump a number of, uh, of weeks until we get almost to week 42, 41 in the, in the second year where we'll, we'll suddenly get towards that idea of restoration exile. And so we broke, broke the book up around what Isaiah is speaking about uh, to just so we have the context of that. And the book's a roller coaster ride. I mean, we will jump around from, hope to judgment back to hope and back to judgment multiple times throughout this book. Um, and, and this is happening right around the death of the King Uzziah. We get a couple Kings. We eventually get Hezekiah, uh, right at the beginning. And so, um, we see in the Southern kingdom, um, some, some of these Kings come pretty quickly. Uh, and we'll watch that as the book goes. Yeah, I I kind of am having a hard time even at the beginning of Isaiah following it. So just be ready to kind of have to, I don't know, slog through is is the right word, but um, 
just have a hard time following it. He goes a little bit back and forth. But Isaiah is kind of known as the Messianic prophet. It's the one that we get so many different prophecies about the coming Messiah. Um, And there is this real theme of remnant and real theme of hope that we can look to. And it grows stronger throughout the book. And especially as we get to the end of the book, you see a lot of that. But at the beginning, you kind of just have to work through um, a lot of judgment for Israel, but also some hope. Yep. So let's just dive in. And we start, uh, God comes out swinging, uh, and, uh, immediately, I mean, Judah is this child who has repelled even the oxes and donkeys know how to obey better than Judah. And he, the, Judah's just sick with sin from head to toe. It's sick with sin. And so, um, it's interesting because it, the indictment is not even like a, around their, their practices of worship. Like they're, there's apparently still offering sacrifices and obeying certain things and Sabbaths and new moons, but God's like, my soul hates those things right now from you guys because you're you're doing the the pictures of worship yet everything about your actual lifestyle and 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 how you're living this out is not showing that you care about anything I care about at all. Like you're you 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 need to cease to do what's evil, learn to do what's good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead to what is case. Like they are the nation that's supposed to be. Peculiar and, and a priesthood to the world. Like they are the picture and representative of God's order in the world. And what people will see when they look in on Israel at this moment is oppression and injustice and uncare for the orphans and widows and all this kind of stuff. So, what good is going to the temple if, if what is communicated by the very lives of the people is things that are so far from who God is? And so, I think God has that indictment on them. Yeah, I do really like how it starts with this very specific and articulate instruction around exactly what life is supposed to look like. And it almost seems like God is offering like a sort of conditional deal here. If you were willing and obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. But what does that look like? Well, it looks like ceasing to do evil, learning good, seeking justice, correcting oppression, caring for the fatherless and the widow. And this is what worship looks like. And even when we think of worship, even in modern day, you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about worship? We probably think about singing songs or coming to church, which is a form of worship, but our whole lives are to be worship. And so I appreciate that he's specifically saying like, your actions need to align with what you say you're going to do. I don't just want your liturgy if you're not going to give me the justice as well. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, we hear about this unfaithful city, um, this sort of land marked with counterfeit coins and watered down wine and leaders who sell out for money and steal. And uh, in so doing, they do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. So we're reminded again, like there's an injustice problem going on in Judah. Uh, and we get similar imagery to Hosea, like the holy city is now known as a whore, but afterwards it will be renamed. So there's some restoration to come. They'll be renamed the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And so, um, but to get us there, there's going to be fire. And, and for that, which is, true like this is how fire works in refining like that which is real will stay in the thing and and will ultimately be more refined in the process but if something's false it will be burnt away it won't last it won't hold up to the fire and so um, that's what is coming for israel it's such a it's such a simple and straightforward picture of sort Mm -hmm. of what judgment will ultimately do for the people Um, will it will refine those who are true and it will cast off those who are not yeah, this uh, there's a line in there that talks about a cleansing that will smelt away the dross. I like that. Uh, those smelting, yeah, so smelting good. away the dross. I like the phrasing and the imagery. We see God is going to purify His people, and Israel will be a, a people and a city that is 
full of justice and righteousness is lodged in her. And this just stirs in me a longing for that place. And it points me to heaven to remember and to dwell on what that new city, what that new heaven and the new earth is going to look like uh, when this is completely fulfilled after Christ's return. Yeah. And, and, and Micah uses language or uh, Isaiah uses language that the other prophet writers have, have used up to this point, a sort mm-hmm. of shalom moment for the nation when they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks and nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither that will they learn war no more. Like there's a, this peace that is to come someday. Um, and, and the, and the plea to the people, I think at this point, it's like, it's turn, repent, like, Let's go back to to what it looks like to to bless all nations. Like let's yeah. push towards the design of 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 God's justice and mercy to the world. Oh, house of Jacob! Like let's get there. Yeah, I think this section could really should ought to compel us to greater work of evangelism and mission work. I mean, there's going to be a day that all the nations will flow to the mountain of the Lord and that we as believers are the priesthood who can usher in and welcome those people into hope. So if we want swords to be turned into plowshares, if we want spears to be turned into pruning hooks, we must believe that Christ is the only way to that. So go and share the gospel, invite others into the peace and righteousness and justice of God. Yeah. And and as expected uh, that their um, their injustice and their practices are also connected to to the the idolatry that they're struggling with as well their sort of condemnation of that and and God's judgment is coming the land's filled with wealth and armies and idols and God's had enough of it and there's there's nowhere that anybody's going to be able to hide and um, there's language here that points like to the fall of 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 Judah and, and Babylon coming to town. There's language here that gets picked up by Jesus around the fall of, of Jerusalem to, to the Romans. And uh, I think there's language here that really points towards a, a day that, that is still to come uh, when God's judgment becomes sort of final. And so there's all these, there's all these ways that future writers will pick up on these languages and, and reuse it uh, to, to point towards a future day, um, which I think is pretty brilliant by the, by the various authors. But um yeah, there's definitely this sort of what we call eschatological. There's this still future orientation mm-hmm. to it all. Yeah, you know, 10 different times in this uh, section where we read about the day of the Lord, God talks about how much he opposes human pride. And we've talked before about how it's uh, at least twice in the New Testament it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So our pride, and we, you know, even when you look at Genesis 3 in the fall, our, our pride, and pride is a big source of separating us from God Mm -hmm. and humility is what restores us. It doesn't restore us to God, but it helps us to enter to fear him well. Yeah. And so there's a judgment coming on Judah. It's going to be kind of flipped upside down. There's sort of this image is of like total upheaval where children are ruling and neighbor will rise up against neighbor. And it's going to be just like God's flipped over the table, not to steal from what we're going to deal with with Mark flipped over the table of Israel and um, Jerusalem gets compared to Sodom here, which um, yeah, we, we often take kind of the new Testament approach and apply it to sexual sin, but let's remember like at least one other prophet will talk about the sins of Sodom and it's, it's pride. Like we just talked about excess mm-hmm. of food, prosperous but but don't aid the poor and needy. They were haughty or prideful uh, and did an abomination. And so um, this is what's happened. They've plundered the poor, the spoil, of the poor is in your houses. You've grinded the face Oof. of the poor. And so they're prideful, you're haughty, all those same accusations exist here. And so, um, and, and it's so interesting, like they've made money that they've got all these adornings, uh, and, and God's going to take all that away and, and give them basically the clothing of the poor and their army is going to be decimated, which King Uzziah's like main contribution up to this point is the army and, and all the, for, all the fortification. And so God's like, look, all the stuff that you guys have gained, like 
on the backs of other people, like it's all going away. Yeah. You know, we, we are seeing right here, the natural consequences of living outside of our design. Like I talked about a little bit ago, Israel is reaping wickedness and destruction because they sowed self gratification and idol worship. Yes. It's pretty simple. And so there's a purging, but there's hope. It's both mm-hmm. always. This is wonders of Isaiah. There will be restoration, and uh, and and there's talk about this branch, but uh, we'll deal with this more as we go. I think branch will 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 continue to change language as the as the prophets go. But at least here, like branch also refers to crops, and so I think it's talking about the abundance of the crops. I think we'll get more messianic as we go around this, but we do get this this sort of phrase here: the there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Like that that language is is a theme that will get picked up throughout this book through multiple different sections. I think all four sections that we're reading include that phrase in it, and so um, and and even gets picked up by New Testament writers. So there's this. There's this one day, there's this restoration that is coming. Yeah, and there's this line here that talks about how the Lord will create. And so as we look forward to this restoration, we it, it shows us that God is going to do even more than just reverse the loss we've already talked about. He's going to do a new and a greater and a better thing. And of course, we know that is fulfilled through Christ and it's fulfilled through the new heavens and the new earth. So we get this vi- image of a vineyard, uh, which uh, if you wanted to pick up on an image, at least of this section of Isaiah, maybe that's the one you choose, but um, it, it will be destroyed. Uh, it's an image that actually gets picked up at the end of Isaiah too, but uh, God built it. He set it right. He put in everything he needed and even like a wine press, but but the grapes when he came in, like they were wild and they were not good grapes. And Israel, it gets kind of compared to this plot of land that gets washed away and um if you've seen terraced vineyards, which is probably what they would have had at the time, like you, you take away one wall, particularly a top wall, like everything will ultimately be washed away in that whole vineyard. It'll become like a hill again. And why is this coming? Well, because you look for justice and there's like, there's multiple play on words here. You look for justice, but found bloodshed. And you looked for mishpat, but you found mishpat. And you look for righteous Zedekah, but you found outcry Zedekah. It's such a um, parallel play on words with similar sounding words. It's pretty brilliant by the author, but, um, God, God's looking for this justice and this righteousness, but all it's found is bloodshed and outcry from the oppressed. Yeah, this theme of vineyard follows us throughout the New Testament as well. And so um, maybe even if you have a little bit of time, hop over to John 15. And if you think of how Israel is the vineyard, uh, how does that change the way we read about Jesus being the vine yep. in John 15? So, whoa, we get the first whoa, and then we cut you guys off from the reading this week. But you get the first whoa, and there's just more coming. And the whoa is to the greedy who want more and more, who get drunk or indulgent, who take advantage in the market, who call evil good and good evil. And judgment is coming. There's, there's, and he's going to signal the surrounding armies to come and attack. Like God, God even says, here's the plan of judgment from you. The outside armies are coming and, and death is getting ready to feast. There's some deep imagery around like uh, um, Shiloh and it's, which is really this picture of, of death and it's, and it's the place like it's coming to eat because there's going to be so many dead bodies related to this judgment. Yeah. I mean, there's these kind of these lists of woes um, against their greed or cynicism or corruption, drunkenness, all of these things distort God's creation of people and land and they reject his perfect design. So what I want to encourage you to do and, and what, Chris and I both hope you're learning throughout this podcast is to ask why, to think critically, not just take it in, but um, to think why does it 
why does it happen this way? Or even with these woes, how do these woes dis- distort God's good design? And the more the more connections we can make, I think the more we'll understand Scripture and the more we'll understand the greatness in the heart of God. Yeah. And so let's jump to New Testament. Mark. Yeah. And we uh, encounter the rich young man who appears right now, actually, in this like a little bit of a middle of a of sandwich in some ways because we we've just heard stories about children and stuff like that. Um, and so instead of a, a little child who Jesus has just held up, mm-hmm. we get someone that the culture at the time probably would have held up quite a bit. The, yeah. the successful, well-to-do individual who seems to be generally good. He observes or observes some level of the, the Torah and comes along and he's like, all right, I, I, you, if you're going to be my rabbi, if, if you're going to be the good teacher to me, like what, what must I do? And, and, and it's almost this question of like discipleship and, um, and if, and I think Jesus, uh, that whole term of good, he kind of flips on, on this guy's head of saying like, all right, if you want to be a disciple, like you gotta understand who I am. Here's the riddle. Like if I'm good and you say that I am and God's one and only God is good, then, then who do you really, who are you really saying I am? And, um, and, and I think he just kind of leaves it at that. And that's why Jesus says like, no, one's good, but God, I don't think Jesus is not associating himself with God. I think Jesus is as a rabbi flipping a question back on this individual. But uh, I think really um, Mark under Mark is making sure we understand like the, the, this, this, this approach, like Jesus absolutely loves this guy. Mark even says like he turns to him mm-hmm. and out of love makes a statement to him basically saying like, look, you've got one barrier to following me. Like, sure. You've got these accomplishments and stuff like that. But like, if you want to follow me, you, then, 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 like you got to be willing to take all these sort of worldly blessings that, that are defining you, whether it's all your, all your accomplishments, whether it's your wealth, whatever it may be. And like, and, and Jesus certainly identifies the wealth here. Um, and, and, and if you're willing to let those things go to follow me, then, then come. And, and the guy goes away, certainly sad because he has great love for those things. And so, um, and maybe he eventually follows. We never know. We never hear from him again. Yeah, I like to have hope <laughs> that he does. But it's, you know, Mark is really strategic here and um, being really clear that Jesus turns around and talks to everyone and calls them children again. And so this story is kind of, you know, another reiteration that the kingdom is for those who come to Jesus empty handed, not those who come with accomplishments or thinking they can do something to earn it. Yeah. And, and, and because like this guy was in some ways like the pictures of like life and life abundant, like to the culture, like the disciples rightly in their own definitions go like, well, then who can be saved? Like that's the picture of like salvation to us. Jesus, like he seems to be the guy doing everything right. And, and clearly he has got favor. Like who could possibly be saved? And it's hard for, it's hard for them to understand this. And Jesus clearly flips it up on them. It's like, no, like anything like through God, anything could happen. And like, God's the one who ultimately saves. It's not about all these other things. And he even reminds them like, look, it's, you wouldn't even be giving up everything. Like he wouldn't even be giving up anything at the end of the day. If he were to sell everything he has, what he would gain so much more yeah. in following Jesus. And it just reminds me of the famous Jamelia quote. He's no fool who gains or gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And like that, I think that's Jesus is teaching here to, to these men about this rich man saying like, look, even if he went out and sold everything, there's so much more to gain over here because all things are possible to God and, and salvation can come through struggle as much as it can come through blessing. And so, um, yes, like that is the invitation in. Yeah. 
So Jesus foretells its death again. This is sort and then of the third guess cycle. what? Big surprise. We're going to get a discipleship instruction right after he foretells his death. There's <laughs> so many cycles here in Mark. And where I just, they are struggling to understand things. Yeah. Those, yeah. those poor disciples. Um, and in a Gentile Jewish world, I mean, it is power, position, title, and, and attributes of, of blessed and success. Like, but Jesus is saying, like, we have a different way. And if they think he's going to be like David, they expect him oh, to yeah. rule on a throne and have advisors. And these guys are like, listen, we were, you know how we hear people be like, oh, she was with me before I had my money or whatever. Like, right. they want to be like, I'm that person, so elevate me. Yeah, who's going to be part of your cabinet, Jesus, when yeah. you uh, are king? And, and uh, Jesus is, is sort of... Uh, flipping that over like they 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 struggle to understand the messiah as the crucified suffering savior they they get the messiah as king over israel um, and their their picture in their mind probably is still jesus somehow doing that um but the idea that he would truly be crucified and suffer and die um they, they just are still struggling with that message yeah they still think that influence or authority equals influence yeah and then Mark um, tells the story of this blind man, which the other gospel writers talk about, but Mark actually names him here, um, which is always interesting, especially given context. It makes you ask the questions of like, okay, what does Mark audience know or think about this name that maybe the other gospel writers didn't? And uh, the name Bartimaeus is actually this odd half Aramaic, half Greek name. And um, so son of Timaeus. And it's interesting if he's got this Greco-Roman audience, um, he actually uses Timaeus, which um, is one of Plato's most famous dialogues, which actually has to do with Plato contrasting seeing in the physical world to being blind to eternal truths. And so um, could Mark in this context be picking up on this for his Greek audience? And and it was even said like until the third century, every educated man would have read this work. And so um, could he be contrasting like this Greek philosophy that the Romans certainly would have bought into and their understanding of seeing versus Jesus's ability to actually heal. The other option is like Bartimaeus uh, can also be understood as son of honor and in, in sort of the, the Greek there. And so is this blind man, like we've just seen children elevated by Jesus. We saw a rich man sort of be de-elevated in some ways by Jesus. And now we're seeing the blind man um, being healed as, as if some, some way to say of like showing how even this blind beggar could be someone of honor in Jesus's kingdom. So I, I think either way, both play out to, to continue the, the teaching of Jesus. Um, and, and this is the last healing and like, it's, it's fascinating too. The last healing is, do you see now? Like, I think the previous healing of the eyes was a teaching lesson around like not really seeing clearly versus really coming to see. And now as Jesus comes to his final week, he's, he's almost like in this healing going, look, look at what happens now. Yeah. And I just saw a connection in here that I'm not exactly quite sure what it means, but there's, you know, we see Bartimaeus being healed. He throws off his cloak. He mm -hmm. springs up and he comes to Jesus. And the very next story, we will again see people throwing cloaks and coming to Jesus. Yep. And so, yeah, we get that um, Palm Sunday story of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. We've This is our third gospel we're talking about. And so we've connected a lot of these dots to Zechariah already and even the practice of Sukkot and, and all these connections. It's super interesting. Um, and, and so, and, and like we've said before, I mean, you have the group of Pharisees to the north and, and they, they have problems with Jesus and they have their own reasons and their own sort of methodologies. They're kind of the 
social conservatives and stuff like that here at the temple, the people in power are not the Pharisees. The Pharisees will, you'll see them kind of work with them a little bit because they all seem to not like Jesus, but um, that the people in power are the the priesthood, particularly the Sadducees at the time. Herod is certainly um, sort of the, the, the overall political figure. And so um, you have this whole group that exists that is really corrupt. I mean, I think that one of the best ways to think about them is actually sort of this mafia style group um, and they're in charge. Uh, and there's plenty of people don't like it. That's why Joe the Baptist is out there calling them brood of vipers and things like that. And so, um, and so I think for here on out, Jesus's main critiques of leadership, we'll see him interact a ton with the, the priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, sort of all the people that were in power in Jerusalem. And um, he's going to have plenty to say about them. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I think we see more and more people understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, people believing Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, we even hear them crying out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. But what they don't understand is what that means. And so just like we saw with the disciples arguing about who would be the greatest, we're seeing this progressive like, I know something about you and I sort of get it, but I don't understand what it means yet. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're excited to have a Messiah. They just don't understand the fullness of what the Messiah right. is. Um, and so Jesus comes along and there's this fig tree. And, and, and historically, I mean, the olive tree, the pomegranate tree, a grapevine, as we've even seen, um, are, are trees themselves that, that can be representative of Israel. Um, but the fig tree never really is. The fruit of the fig sometimes are representatives of, of what uh, the Israelites are. But um, the tender of, uh, or the fig itself, um, in the connection of Proverbs 27 tended to actually be connected to the leaders. Um, and so with, with that in mind, I think there's actually a little bit of a market sandwich. Well, there is a market sandwich between the fig tree and the lesson of the fig tree, but um, I think that helps make sense of what's going on with cleansing at the temple and all this kind of stuff in the story. Because the next thing Jesus does show up to this temple. And now most of this pace is, places under the rule of the priesthood and the Sadducees who um, have, have kind of absolute power in a lot of way over the finances, over the pocketbook, over the rules around um, what animals are clean and what aren't, what money can be used, what money can't be used, um, all those sort of things. And so uh, by this point time, they've totally exploited um, the, the temple in ways that um, basically help profit them a whole lot. Like this was sort of the practice at the time. And, and so uh, this priesthood was making a ton of money. And I think Jesus comes in here into the temple and, and the temple itself is sort of this, here's where God dwells. Like if, if, if those who are outsiders can come in here and this is where they should learn about who God is, they could come with prayers. They would experience, they would see the priesthood and how the priesthood represents God. They would see the practices and the place of, of the death of animals and all this kind of stuff to teach the lesson of God's forgiveness and sacrifice. Like all the lessons about who God is should happen within these walls and what they come into these, particularly those on the outside, what they would come into is extortion. And, and Jesus is livid about it, going, look, this is where the nations, like your role is to be a blessing to the nations, to be a peculiar people. And if the nations were to come in and see this, all they see is extortion. And Jesus is just so mad about it. And, and they've taken it a place for prayer for the nations, uh, for the nations to come and pray and, and made it a, a den of robbers. And um, uh, Jesus is more mad here than he ever is anywhere else. Like he even crafts a whip by the book of the Gospel of John. So um, it's, it's so frustrating for him. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, I think, <laughs> I mean, there's more to the lesson, I think, even with prayer and the nations, but yeah. And I, this idea of, 
you know, the nations and coming in happening in this sandwich of the fig tree. I think it comes back to, again, what you said and what we talk about. I feel like all over the place, every book we've talked about, the role that we, um, that Israel is to play in ministering the gospel yeah. to Be- Gentiles. Because they, they, they come back for full circle of this sort of lesson of this fig tree and the priesthood and Herod and everybody that's in power. And, and it's interesting because this, this, this not just outside the temple, you can see off in the distance this literal mountain of dirt that has been moved to build Herod's fortress upon it. And at some point, the disciples. And, and there's a little bit of reading into the context here, but I think the disciples are sitting there being like, how, when is this going to happen? How is this even possible? Like, Jesus, you just gave us this object lesson, and, and not only that, but cleanse the temple against these power, powerful powers that be that have been here for a while. And not only that, but they're going to kill you. Um, disciples don't totally know that yet, but it's still going to be the lesson. Like, the powers that be ultimately kill Jesus in this process, but... Like they're sort of like, when will this happen? And and not only that, but they think Jesus is still Messiah and it's going to somehow take up shop. And Jesus's lesson is like, look, it's not going to be the military force. It's not going to be like how this is going to change, how Herod's going to be thrown into the ocean. This mountain's going to be moved and how the Sadducees and the priesthood's finally going to be changed. It's by faith mm-hmm. and prayer. Like that is the different way. You're not conquering, destroying through your military by right, but about forgiveness and mercy and prayer and all these sort of lessons that Jesus kind of wraps up here. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said just as we think forward to even when we read Corinthians talking about how we are now the temple of God. And so we should inhabit prayer for all nations, just as there was a place of prayer for all nations in the built temple. Yep. And so the authority of Jesus gets challenged by mm-hmm. the leaders. Uh, so they're obviously not so happy with what he's been saying at this point. And there's a biological lineage of the priesthood. There's schools for rabbis and Pharisees and sages and scribes and all. But the, but Jesus is sort of out of left field for them. And he kind of connects the dots between him and John the Baptist, whether John the Baptist was his rabbi or he's the one to baptize him. So there's some authority that comes from it. But um, it, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty straightforward. Um, lesson that he kind of gets with them because John the Baptist was pretty popular with the people. Um, it's a lot of people thought he was a prophet. Uh, he obviously was at least biologically in line of the priest. Um, people, people thought he was all these different things. Some called him a rabbi. And so, um, he was really popular. And the question Jesus just has for these leaders is like, okay, like who do you say John the Baptist is? Like, does he carry authority? Because if he carries authority from God, then that means I carry authority to God. But if you say he doesn't carry authority, then all these people are going to really not like you for saying that. Like John the Baptist is popular and and they just don't want to answer the question because they feel kind of trapped. And I love it. Jesus doesn't really say much after that. He's like, well, like if you can't answer that, then I'm not going to play your game. So um, it's so good. And like, it's just such a, like a chess move uh, by Jesus against these guys who are just trying to get him in trouble. Yeah. I mean, it's really clear here that they know the truth, but they're surprised it like we talk about or we read about in Romans 1 because they want to maintain power and control so they would rather ignore truth so they can have power than embrace truth yep and then we get these parable of the tenants and I love that we read Isaiah this week because um in Isaiah, we get very similar language. There's a God. He builds the vineyard. He puts in the wine press. He puts in the watchtower. He puts in all this stuff. He sets up everything correct. Um, and, and in Isaiah, then God comes looking for grapes, but he found all these wild grapes. But Jesus changes the story here and in ways that I think the leaders would probably 
put themselves into the story. Like Jesus has this picture of the vineyard being built, but then the person who builds it goes away and he put foreigners over, over, over the garden. Now, if you're an Israelite, like how would you understand that moment in that story? Like, I think you would think, well, God built the vineyard, which is Israel and he's put foreigners now in charge of it. And I think they would think of, well, maybe Babylon or, or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. Like there's been all these foreign groups who have been over them. And not only that, who have killed a lot of people. And so uh, I, I think there's this idea of like, and, and there have been prophets and there have been um, priesthoods and groups that, that God has tried to, to, to bring, to tend his vineyard. And, and, and ultimately these foreign groups have killed them and has kept them under oppression. So what does the owner do in the story? Well, you expect Jesus to kind of say, well, he wiped out all the wicked tenants and appointed these non-foreigners, these original people to, to ultimately oversee it. And, and that would have made sense to the prescribes. Like that's the power that they would expect. But, but Jesus doesn't say that. And he says, well, and he put others in charge. And, and I think when Jesus then quotes Psalm 118, his quoting here, um, and, and coming right on the heels of the triumphal entry where people are shouting this Psalm 118 at Jesus, like Jesus, you are the Psalm 118 character. Yeah. I think Jesus quoting that here saying like, look, like that, that, that stone that, that is rejected, which is really going to be him is going to become the cornerstone. And, and Jesus becomes, I think in the parable and think in the teaching here, the new tenant of the vineyard, like this is it's 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 not you guys who are going to be restored the leadership of of temple as, as sort of the the overseers of the vineyard it's going to be Jesus and all those that follow him are going to be the the tenants over the vineyard and and such a it's such a switch uh for them uh, Jesus kind of sets them up like yeah 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 like it's the foreigners and they're the problem and then Jesus switches it to go yeah and and it's not going to be you guys either and it's going to be this stone that gets rejected who in Psalm 118 and and in the triumphal entry gets certainly connected to Jesus. Yeah. And I just want to read a little bit from first Peter as well, because I think Peter picks up on it, you know, after the crucifixion. So he's gotten the full, you know, I mean, we read about it first in Psalm 118 and then Jesus quotes it kind of mysteriously, but we know it's in reference to him. And then Peter says, um, and you have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen as precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Think about this. He had just been talking about the temple. Uh, you are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God, to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. And then he goes on to quote um, that Psalm 118 and a couple of other passages. So Peter kind of brings it all back together. So I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this, but uh, remember this when we get back to reading Peter. Yeah, it's so, I mean, yeah, Peter's brilliant in some of the things, ways he connects the dots between the Old and New Testament and his letters. So, Psalm. <laughs> he's brilliant four. later. I mean, he's, you know, we're thankful for Peter here. We don't see his brilliance as so much in Mark, but we do. No, no, but he, he does <laughs> certainly connect to like Jesus' oh, teaching yeah. here and, 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 it's and how he writes his letter to the, the church. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so really good. Cool. So Psalm 43. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it probably should go with Psalm 42 since the refrain of hoping God it continues throughout that. But one of the things that stood out to me is that the psalmist for sure wants vindication and deliverance from the ungodly and the enemy. But he talks about how his joy and solace is in God's presence, not in the alleviation of his struggles. And that's a good challenge to me. 
Yeah, uh, there's definitely this sort of uh, preach the gospel to yourself kind of psalm. Like he feels the weight. It feels dark. You may not be feeling that God is close, but he does know like, yes, but I, I know God's still true. And when he shows up, like then, then I will go back to like, I look forward to worshiping like I used to and, and, and all those sort of things. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a prayer almost to pray when you're struggling with darkness and depression and stuff like that, because it still includes these like, yeah, I may not, I may not be there right now. And God certainly feels distant, but, but I know, I know there's a future and I know there's a hope. And then Psalm 40. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's pretty crazy that David says burnt offering and sin offering you haven't required. Um, it's pretty shocking that he says that, but he also talks about and says, just as I don't withhold your truth and your faithfulness from others, don't withhold your mercy from me. And it's convicting to me. Can I pray the same thing? Uh, when I say, Lord, I, I don't withhold what is true of you from others. So, um, yeah, it's a good challenge again to share the gospel. Yeah. I, I like that double hold back. Like I didn't hold back. So you don't mm-hmm. hold back. Um, and, yeah. And it's interesting because the prophets, we just watched them through like, I'm not interested in your sacrifices, but in mercy and justice. But David, David says like, God doesn't require and delight in these things, but he also doesn't give us a whole lot of explanation of exactly what he delights in. But, but David certainly is, is reminded of, of God's faithfulness that he's the one who brings him out of, of the dark places, brings him out of the mud and, and mire, um, and, and, and sets his feet upon a rock. Like that's what happens for us. It's, it's, we don't, we don't find the rock. God picks us up out of our sin and death and puts us on the rock of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's so much good news. Psalm 118, or at least the section of Psalm 118. Yeah. I mean, it's messianic as <laughs> yeah. we, I mean, I feel like we already kind of yeah, hit we, on all of it. With, with the, whether the triumphal entry or the tenants. Yeah. We, we yeah. certainly get uh, multiple parts of Psalm 118. So next week, what should we be looking out for? Yeah. So you're going to hit on Isaiah's vision in chapter six, and it really is, I mean, it's a super powerful section, but it's going to inform our understanding of a large part of the book of Isaiah. So pay attention to it. Remember it. Uh, remember specific details and descriptions, because I think it's going to come up and help us to better interpret what Isaiah does and sees in the future. And then in the New Testament, just continue to pay attention to Jesus's use of the Old Testament in this section. He's going to talk to the religious leaders a lot more, and it's just really super cool how he uses the Old Testament to argue with the religious leaders. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they're answering with his own Bible verses. Um, and, and yeah, that call of Isaiah, this will be our first like formal call of a prophet. Uh, we're going to see it a few more times, the sort of pattern of the calling of the prophet. Um, but in that moment, there's there's these image lessons that are included in there, like the burning stone. And and, and it becomes almost analogous as the book goes. And sort of Sarah said, like there's some, some parts that are being set up. So, but like, look at these contrasting things, like this burning stone sounds like such a judgment thing, but what is it used to do? And it's such a sort of the beauty of, of how Isaiah plays itself out. Yeah. In the new Testament, we're going to get deal with the kind of prophetic section that most of the gospel writers kind of write in, in the temple period of when Jesus is in Jerusalem. And yeah, there's a ton of old Testament imagery and references, but like, take that pause, look up. All right. How does Daniel talk about the son of man? So when Jesus says it and uses similar imagery, like what, what does Jesus really getting at? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think, I think of all areas where we as New Testament readers tend to just go so awry is reading prophetic language in the New Testament and not understanding how the Old Testament used that same language. And so um, make sure we kind of take that pause and don't just automatically ascribe sort of this very modern understanding of 
New Testament prophecy and the end times and all that to it. Make sure that you understand how things are being used in context before you reach some of those theological conclusions. So that's it for us this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.